Hi, I'm Teffer. I'm Caddy. And I'm Hannah. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you are invited. Yeah! yeah! So this week we read two books for a change. We read Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes by Eleanor Kerr. I, Eleanor Kerr, we're going to go with that pronunciation. Absolutely. And Number the Stars by Lois Lowry. And so we wanted to look at this week about how we teach World War II to kids in schools. So these, I know I read both of these books in, I think, elementary school. Did both of you read these books in school, either of them? I read them as part of my homeschool curriculum. I, okay, I didn't right. read them in elementary school because I didn't really go to elementary mm-hmm. school. Now, Caddy, you were in the French school system. I was in the French school system, and we did not read these books because in Quebec there is a strong um, anti-conscription, uh, uh, anti-draft history, mm-hmm. um, a lot. A lot of draft dodgers in Quebec during World War II, a lot of people that served as well. Um, but uh, it changes the perspective, the pedagogical mm. perspective in school. Yeah. Um, so we learned very little about uh, Canadian involvement in uh, World Wars One, Two, Gulf yeah. War, Vietnam War, you name it. Um, yep, yeah, so never read those. Interesting. That's fascinating. Whereas, yeah, whereas like English schools, at least in Ontario, are like kind of obsessed with the world wars. Um, Canada is is maniacally obsessed with World War II. Yeah. This episode is coming out on Remembrance Day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we did that on purpose. Uh, This is part of our November theme. So last Mm -hmm. week was supposed to kick this theme off and then we had uh, no power at all. Because my this neighborhood keeps having no power randomly for full days. but our November theme is to take a critical look at sort of the themes of Remembrance Day, looking at war, looking at mm-hmm. uh, the wars we don't talk about, like the wars of invasion that created all of the North American countries mm-hmm. as they stand today. Um, and also just kind of taking, like you were saying, yeah, another look at how we teach about war. Mm-hmm. And so these are two books that are written for children about the Second World War. So Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes is based on a true story. And I think we'll get more into that and sort of how the story came to the author and all of that. Um, but so basically, it's about a girl who is living, who was uh, like two years old, I think, when the atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. And um, so when she's like 11 or 12, she gets leukemia. And um, and the sort of the setup of the book is there's this kind of like dread in everyone's minds of the atom bomb disease, which is leukemia. Uh, and so she gets leukemia and she gets sicker and sicker. And um, like someone introduces her, like sort of like reminds her of this like old mythology of if you fold a thousand paper cranes, your wishes will be granted. Um, and so she is kind of gets this in her head about like folding a thousand paper cranes and then she'll get better and then she dies before she can fold them all and then her classmates sort of complete them for her and that is that story number the stars is also it's based on like not like true characters but like true events largely and so it is set in the second world war in denmark uh, in copenhagen 
And it is about, so the main character is a girl named Annalise and her best friend Ellen is Jewish. And so it is set like around the time when basically, um, from from what I understood from the, the afterword in this book about the true events is that sort of like a high up government official, like German government official leaked to the Danish government that um, the like mass relocation of Jews was going to take place and so they were all warned and um, there was basically a mass like underground concerted effort to smuggle almost all of them across the um, channel to Sweden and so uh, this this story is basically chronicling um, Ellen and her family being smuggled out of the country to Sweden but from the point of view of um, Annalise and so yes and Marie Yes. Yes, our sister's named Louise. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> An important important yes. point that um, you made air quotes while saying mm-hmm. relocating, just so that no one yes. gets it in their mind that um, <laughs> we might be non-believers. Nazi, in... Nazi sympathizers? Hell no. No. Does, does, anybody, does anybody listening to this show believe <laughs> that we are secretly Nazi sympathizers? Send um, us a message. Let us know. <laughs> so I used, I used the word relocating in air quotes because I think that it leads us into something interesting about this book and so that that is the word that is used in the book and that is I mean I think that what they were told at the time but this book does not and it's partially because like I don't think people on the ground knew exactly what that meant but this book doesn't at all engage with like what relocation would have actually meant for these families which is um yeah so these are both these are interesting examples of how we tell the stories of sort of the non-combatant perspective of World War II to kids. And so let's get into it. Yeah, let's I, dive deep. I would say these books are middle grade rather yes. rather than uh, teen. Very I think much. probably we are going to read one of the books that is more young adult that engages with war but but this Mm -hmm. is just kind of a good place to start because I think it's where a lot of people get their start yes a lot of people who are at least uh English speaking Mm -hmm. um interestingly Stacco and the Thousand Paper Cranes is written by a Canadian author yes and Lois Lowry is American Mm -hmm. um neither one are European authors with lived experience of World War II Mm -hmm. or Japanese descendant authors yes for Sadaka yes. yeah <laughs> yeah both of these are authors um like in the I'm trying to remind myself of the the afterword of this one but I believe that the story with with Lois Lowry is that um like a friend of of Lois Lowry's was was Danish and sort of told her about this and then she researched it and told it and then and then with Sadako, um, Sadako's classmates apparently like published a collection of her like diaries and letters um, as as a book, and but like very limited publishing run it sounds like. And so um, Eleanor Kerr like lived in Japan for a while and sort of like heard about this story and then like got her hands on a copy of this like original book um, and had it translated and then wrote this novel based on it. Um, and so, like, I have some feelings about that, as I'm mm-hmm. sure both of you do as well. <laughs> um, Tell um, us your feelings. Well, so my feelings are, um, I mean, so there's few different choices that you could make when confronted with, like, this is a really compelling story told in these diaries and these letters. Um, I think it would be 
great for this to have a wider audience. There are a few different choices you could make. You could be like, I, as a white woman, am perfectly well positioned to write this story and I'm going to have these translated into English and write this novel. And then there are other choices that you could make, like, hmm, I think that, like, we should translate this collection and just, like, try and get it published for a wider audience as is. Or, like, maybe I should, like, pitch to my publishing house that I know that they should, like, try and encourage Japanese authors to pitch this story or you know there 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 are choices that could have been made one interesting element uh in with regards to that is that uh Sadako's brother Masahiro actually mm-hmm. wrote the complete story of Sadako Sasaki uh Sasaki um which i believe was written after oh interesting this book came out and and sort of corrected some of the misinformation in the book okay. uh, most notably eleanor kerr has sadako yeah. die before she's finished the cranes when she is at 600 something oh. sadako in fact finished a thousand and was close to 1500 wow um, before she passed away she had a lot of trouble finding paper and she ended up using medicine wrappers mm. and things like that that, that is, is in the, in the book, book a little yeah, bit yeah. but it's definitely like she doesn't finish them in the book but she did so so that's kind of the biggest mis, uh, miscomprehension. <sighs> that oh, we're going to have to talk about that. I'm very curious about that choice. I, I'm really... It's romanticizing. Yeah. I think mm. that there's something about this where, look, I can't speak for the author, but there's mm-hmm. definitely a side of, you know, reading it and going like, well, you want to make it compelling. Mm-hmm. And if you're serving children this idea that like, oh, there's this ritual that you can do in folding a thousand paper cranes and your wish will mm-hmm. be granted, yet this child did this and their wish was not granted because surprise, surprise, there are no genies, um, you know, and that's not the way the world works. Um, it's, you know, it's probably a choice that was made to think like how do we make children have hope in these things right because it really is because it's not about the direct impact of active combat or anything Mm -hmm. like that it really is about the consequences of war and how those are you know everlasting so how Mm -hmm. do we keep children hopeful that there is hope for peace that there is hope for resolution that there is hope Mm -hmm. for health when you know especially when we think about our current political climate, uh, I guess that would justify the choice. Also, no one's going to read a book about, like, and as we, we spoke about during Bummer September, no one's going to read a book about, like, no one wants to read a book. I think want is a better mm-hmm. word. About just misery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It ain't fun. No. And addressed to children, what's the point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point, that you can't necessarily... Mm-hmm write a book for children that serves up a hope and then immediately dashes the hope. Yeah. Um, what a so, sad childhood. <laughs> she's going to fold a thousand cranes and then she'll get better and she folds a thousand cranes. And, and nothing then. happened. <laughs> yeah. She died. It sucked. Her family was sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this happened to thousands upon thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. The other, I think, really mm-hmm. significant omission from Sadako and the Thousand Paper mm-hmm. Cranes, which is, I think, a book that does a very good job of of serving up the um, the horrors of yeah. the nuclear bomb to an audience. Um, mm-hmm. But the one really big omission is is responsibility. 
Now, this is a Canadian woman writing it, and Canadians were allies of the U.S. in World mm-hmm. War II. Mm-hmm. And in World War II, the U.S. decided to drop some atomic bombs on Japan for not really much reason whatsoever. To end the war. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I mean... It was... They had two. Yeah. They dropped both. <laughs> and, right, like, yeah. if, if my memory serves correctly, it really was a question of, like... How do we make sure that um, Japanese forces will give up, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll drop a bomb, kill a bunch of people. Yeah. I mean... I mean, drop uh, a bomb on an urban center, exactly. not on a military base, exactly. on a city. And yeah. then yeah. two days later, we'll drop another one. Yeah. And we'll tell them, we're going to keep dropping some every two days, even though, in fact, we know now through the archives of the Manhattan Project that they did not, they were not ready to drop another one two days later. Yeah. But we are still facing the ecological impacts. We're still yeah. facing the medical impacts. I mean, I, you can understand, like, it sucks because when we talk about this, the topic of war, everything is can sort of be justifiable. And I'm saying this with a, cr- a scrunchy face because, like, mm-hmm. I don't want it to be justifiable. Yeah. Right? These are just decisions of, like, you know, grown ass men who mm-hmm. are like, "Hey, mm-hmm. we're going to make decisions for you." Um, but I will say, I forgot briefly about Pearl Harbor uh, while mm-hmm. I was saying that, and was kind of like, "And they hadn't even shown any aggression," but that's not actually true. The Japanese mm-hmm. did actually bomb Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. and it was the only strike on American soil during World War Two. Yeah. Can I give you a yeah. really sad fact about yeah. Pearl Harbor? I learned about Pearl Harbor when the movie came out. Welcome to my francophone upbringing. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. I was like 14 and I was like, they did yeah. what? This, what? What did you learn about? Um, I learned about, um, well, I mean, obviously we yeah. learned about the Holocaust, uh, but mm-hmm. we, that was about it. Yeah. Just a lot of Quebecois history? Uh, it was or? a lot of Quebecois history, a lot of Canadian history, a lot of, I mean, it also depends on the perspective of the teacher. I mean, my history teacher in high school um, who did not like me very much was very much of a Quebec nationalist um, Mm. and very her class was her class was taught in the way that you would imagine it would be taught to when you don't necessarily believe that Canada is something that is viable or interesting or that Mm. you don't want to be a part of so um, yeah it's it definitely skewed the perspective. Mm-hmm. All we got was Quebecers didn't participate in the war because, well, you know, we had morals. But there was also a question of, like, linguistics. We're in Quebec in the 40s. Everyone running everything is Anglophone. Quebecers were seen as subhuman. So there was a lot of discrimination there. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's also Canada was uh, Canada joined uh, the war effort because of its belonging to the Commonwealth, mm-hmm. and for Quebecers, that is a complicated, yeah. complicated relationship. We don't want to do things because of the Queen. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Liz, you're cool, but no, yeah. um, you don't. You don't get to decide anything for mm-hmm. us, as you don't really give a hoot. Mm-hmm. I am. Um, I mean, so I went to high school in the U.S., so a lot of my history is from a very U.S. perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, when I moved to Canada, I was 
married for a significant time into a family of Anglo-Quebec, Anglo-Canadian, Anglo-Quebec uh, people for whom World War II is just monumental. It's just the most important thing. I had a um, veteran, one of the oldest veterans still alive of World War II in, in Canada in that family who recently passed away. And I was really surprised by how important it was, how significant. I mean, it really felt more significant even than it had in the States. Um, but I somehow never made the Commonwealth link. I never made the, like, mm-hmm. oh, right, Canada went to war because Britain went to war. Yeah, um, And I kind of always was like, oh, yeah, Canada went to war because, like, the U.S. was going to war and they were neighbors. No, um, Canada joined the war way before the U.S. did. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's they just... also fought in World War One for the same exact reason. Mm-hmm. And it makes things complicated. And then if Mm -hmm. I can add another touch of like how complicated this is to assimilate, I'm from a Senegalese family. So in those days, Senegal was a French colony. And there was significant involvement of the Senegalese army as part of the French army. But they would literally send them out as first line. And um, they, you know, once a battle would be won or something like that, they would have the Senegalese army remove their uniforms and give them back to French uh, military in order to, you know, claim the victory. There was also a massacre of uh, Senegalese uh, military by the French um, because they were asking for payment. Um, so even growing up, it was very complicated because mm-hmm. I would speak about it with my parents. And my dad is actually, he was French. Uh, he, he was born on a French boat escaping France in 1941 um, so on his way back to Senegal so it's it's a very interesting rapport to like the powers that were at B at that time and then you add multiple angles of oppression and colonialism and everything becomes real complicated yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely there were there were no good guys mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. when you really think about it yeah it's just it's so you know, in World War Two, the Allies are just such a lauded good guys in culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and and Hitler, <laughs> real bad guy. Nazi Germany, real bad mm-hmm. fascist regime. Yep. Like fascist regime that mm-hmm. did have to be stopped from gaining more mm-hmm. power. Um, but then we read a book like Sadako mm-hmm. about a little girl who got leukemia, whose mother thought she was okay after the bomb went off and was terrified that her baby was dead and found her and she seemed okay. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, she died. I mean, we have this weapon that kills people for years and generations even after it's gone off because of of, um, birth defects and Mm -hmm. and, uh, radiation-affected people. And and that's the, the shining good guys who dropped it. And, yeah. you know, didn't drop it and then go, shit, guess we'd better stop nuclear development. But instead went, guess we'd better keep on developing more nukes faster than anybody else can. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we still have this argument about nuclear disarmament. And I, I think this edge of panic in the global community that didn't exist before nuclear mm-hmm. development. Um just constantly because there's there's this knowledge that 
Yeah, I mean, we all know this because this is a fear everybody has. This knowledge that total destruction is so easy <laughs> at this point. Um, and that just really, really complicates the narrative. So I understand why it's not in a children's book, as I understand why, you know, she had to not have completed her thousand cranes. Mm-hmm. But um, these are often books that are the introduction kids get to talking about World War II. And there is an ideology there. There's a very clear ideology there that is saying Nazi fascism is wrong, but American fascism is okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's because history is told by the victors. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's the tough part. And, you know, I think I think the anti, yeah, militarized conflict sentiment around the table is probably quite similar amongst the three of us so i don't know that there's going to be any like war apologies happening here like it's it's really tough especially as an adult who works with kids and is in contact with kids because these are also things that they have to learn about at some point and there's something really challenging about trying to find out how to expose children to this reality to injustice, to violence, to terror without, uh, yeah, without compromising their, I don't want to say innocence because that's not fair, um, but without compromising their development, right? Without creating um, a pathway to trauma and just this excessive fear. I've seen children who have come from, you know, many different place where things were unfair and violent and challenging and they have this fear Mm -hmm. they have it it's just it's it's intrinsic they're just like Mm oh something bad is gonna happen these are kids who see the news and hear about the news because it's all we do right now is talk about the news and who are just constantly like is this going to happen to me and I struggle with that as, as an educator. I struggle with that as an aunt, as yeah. a hopefully one day parent. I don't know yeah. how how to how to do this. Maybe these books are the right way, but what do you do with them too? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a like question of like how yeah, how do we tell these stories in a way that's not totally traumatizing but that's also honest? And, like, I was thinking about what you were saying about the, like, there are no good guys. Um, whereas these, these books are really trying to not tell that story. Like, like in, I would say in Sadako, like, if there is a bad guy, the bad guy is, like, war as a monolith. But, like, as a kind of, like, depersonalized, like, not at all thinking about, like, who causes war or, like, it's just, like, war as a monolith, but, like, not thinking about it any further is like the bad guy and then in um like uh number of the stars is really trying to cast um it's very firmly casting like uh good guys and you know the good guys is like the resistance and all people have done work and that gets into like this so one of the things that i really noticed about this book this time around that i hadn't like i only had vague memories of this book is that the protagonist of Number of the Stars is is not the Jewish girl. Um, so this is a book about the Holocaust, but the protagonist is, you know, like a, a white Aryan Danish citizen. And so that is just sort of like telling about the way we 
teach history to kids I think like this is this reads very much as a book of like you know there were people who were very anti anti-semitic and were doing horrible horrible things to Jews but there were also good white people who were stopping that from happening this is so when I read number of the stars I can't get away from the whole constellation of media and books I was reading around mm-hmm. it because it was part of a curriculum and I read yeah. a bunch of other stuff and I okay. read uh, the um, abridged diary of Anne Frank the one that took out all of the stuff about her you know having a boyfriend and exploring sexuality because like who boy and um, also Cor- uh, Corey Ten Boom's uh, um, what is the name of it? So Corey Ten Boom, I think from the blank expressions is maybe one of those things that I got very specifically from from my uh, particular religious upbringing. Corey Ten Boom was a uh, Christian Dutch woman who um, was a very strong Calvinist Christian and helped hide Jews in her home, as as quite a lot of Dutch people did. Um, and it is, it's kind of a similar story. Now, she wrote her memoirs, so it's actually her memoirs, but it is... I mean, Anne Frank obviously is actually a Jewish girl actually having the experience, but it is really interesting how many narratives there are about of people being like, and then we helped the Jews because we were good and we helped them. And it really does smack a little bit of like survivor guilt and like just kind of being that 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 uneasiness of maybe I wasn't in the resistance you know mm-hmm. but you can still imagine well if I was in this situation I would do that mm-hmm. but then I don't know this is my jaded side coming out I see literal armored tanks rolling through neighborhoods that belong to ice because ice somehow got literal armored tanks and I'm wondering how many people are actually hiding the people who need to be hidden oh but let's be <laughs> like, honest here let's be let's get real honest yeah. thoughts and prayers yeah that's it yeah um it's hard to put your body on the line mm-hmm. and i don't want to think about what that would be like i it scares mm-hmm. the the crap out of me um also because uh, as a visible minority yeah one likes to, you know, realize that uh, you are the first to go. Horror movies taught me that. And I was like, great. If this is what happens when there's just some bad guy with a mask, imagine what happens when it's people who just already hate everyone. Yeah. Uh, they will hate yeah. you first. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, all this is very challenging. I feel like, and it's hard because it's very emotional for all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think we, don't want to gloss over things um, but at the same time we want to think that we would do the right thing but mm-hmm. in that context doing the right thing is also putting yourself in danger yeah mm-hmm. and there's something really scary about putting yourself in danger for someone and then you start thinking from a reciprocal sense like you know perspective mm-hmm. would someone put themselves in danger to protect me mm-hmm. um and this is like hey look this is you know my own a lot of my own crap that i'm, I'm dishing out here but that's really challenging yeah. i don't i i'd like to think that i would i'd like to think that i would be okay to put my life on the line for someone but i'm also really scared of pain and death and mm-hmm. you know all, there's all that stuff there's um 
like since we are talking about teaching children as you're saying this i'm i'm realizing that i was raised with maybe a more intense smarter complex than a lot of people because i was raised very fundamentalist calvinist and there was just so much talking about martyrs so much talking about martyrs just just endlessly talking about martyrs Corrie ten boom actually did end up in a concentration camp for what she did and Oof. her sister died i she didn't die because she went on to write her memoirs um so so just and people call her a martyr and there was just so much talk of like yep the minute anything goes down like you've got to be the first one there <laughs> like you've got to be putting your body on the line um and I didn't really start realizing that was a weird way to be raised until I was maybe in my 20s like was suddenly just like oh I think maybe everybody isn't constantly thinking about how they can sacrifice themselves for somebody I dated a guy who would say like I just hope that God lets me be a martyr I just like hope that God kills me in his service we stopped dating after that thank you I I'm mean, glad it was to like, hear that um, it was, but so I mean, it was kind of an. It, it sounds extreme, but it wasn't actually that unusual. People would say, like, I just hope, and we saw that with the guy who, uh, what was his name? There was a guy who was trying to go uh, be a missionary to an unreached people group off the coast of India who have legal protection, and you are not allowed to go oh, to their island. Yes, I remember and, this. And you know, he got shot with arrows because they have protection, and. Um, all of his journals and blog posts are like, praise God, I'm going to die in his service. That is not really a great way to raise children. That is not really a great attitude to raise children with. Um, that did me some harm. But Oof. there's a, I'm sorry, that was very loud. No, it's not. It's not a question of loud. It's just like, that's some real realness that you're dishing out here. Yeah, sorry. But on the other hand, like when we're talking about Anne-Marie in this book, she is a privileged white girl in her society and privileged people do need to get some of that message of like there are a whole lot of people whose bodies are on the line for your ideology because that's one of the realities of living as a white person is that we have our privilege because people who are not white uh, have less privilege and and um, it is important to also teach that <laughs> And so I do think the book does an important thing also. And I mean, we've gotten off point because this book isn't really glorifying martyrdom in the same way that some books are. It does have a happy ending. She survives. Um, but it's just, these things aren't simple. Isn't it messed up that survival is happy? <laughs> Oof. Yeah. 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 And it is like, it's interesting thinking about that because this like one thing, this makes me wish that this book were like actually like a young adult book, not a children's book, because I think if it were at an older audience, you could engage with some of this stuff more because I think this book does at least a little bit sort of engage with like, it is like, it is not a no cost thing to, to be like you were saying, putting yourself on the line to protect the like, um, her her sister dies as part of the resistance and um her her sister's fiance who's then like close to their family even after the sister dies also dies by the end of the war because he's actively involved in the resistance um and so it does it does engage with that and i think yeah i don't know it would be interesting to have this story told to older children so that we could engage with that sort of like yeah this is scary and this is important and um kind of like thinking about that more you know what i want is i want 
a book about Lise. I want a book about Amory's sister that's for mm-hmm. a young adult audience. That maybe that doesn't end with her dying, but maybe has like how she got involved in the resistance and mm-hmm. like how she met her fiance and like I find that really interesting because yeah. that's also something that we don't get, right? And and I appreciate hearing, you know, this this very intersectional pr- uh, perspective about privilege and all that. The issue that I have is that a lot of these books, you know, these books are consequences of war. It's once 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 war is out there and uh, war does not appear out of nowhere. Um, there's there's a prelude to war, right? Unfortunately. And I think that that's also something through which there could be a lot of work that could be done, right? It's it's oh, we're seeing that things are becoming unjust. We're in Quebec, yeah. so like we are look, seeing that things we're are becoming this. unjust. Um, you know, I see that things are becoming unjust. Am I going to rest on my laurels, or am I going to actively, you know, use the 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 means that I have in order to do something and start showing support, or do I have to wait for things to get like balls to the wall, horrible? Mm-hmm. before I start saying, hmm, maybe I should do something. So there's like a preventative thing as well. Like, I mean, you know, okay, this is my little idealist, uh, democratic, socialist, left-winginess, but like, I like to believe that the power, the balance of power belongs to the people, or at least I hope that it does, and that governments have no choice but to to a certain extent, listen and act and, you know, yeah, behave in a way that is that is coherent. But then when your society goes down the drain uh, because people have been conditioned and people have, uh, you know, through the use of propaganda, through the use of all sorts of, you know, horrible mechanisms, then all of a sudden that becomes much easier, right, for governments to just be like, well, you want this. And you are helping me to look good. And even though we all know that no one ever comes out of these situations looking good. Yeah. No one does. So how do we talk about maybe the prelude to this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this makes me think of something that I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about World War One and World War Two is I want more like education around like looking at how Looking at the relationship between World War One and World War Two, which is basically like, like yes, you can say like the Nazis caused World War One, but if you look at it more, like again, my my um, like high school did a really good job of this history. I think is like if you look back, it's like okay, you had World War One, you had the Treaty of Versailles, which basically like totally impoverished Germany and took away all of their power, and that is the condition that allowed fascism to rise. Um, and so like. And poverty now. That yeah. would be one. Is, yeah. But, you know, actually, yeah. I mean, if I can tie that to Quebec for a second, mm-hmm. I do see that in Quebec. Quebec is poor. Quebec does have unemployment rates. And and that is due to political um, irresponsibility, I think, mostly on the provincial level. I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's the federal government's fault. I think it's the provincial government's fault. Um, you can correct me because I think you know more about this than I do. But... Um, but you do have Quebec is poor. Quebec has really high rates of unemployment. And now we have this government in Quebec being like, whose fault is it that we're poor? I know it's immigrants. Mm-hmm. I know it's Anglophones. And I'm in this really, like, I'm in a class right now 
where we have a lot of Anglophone Quebecers. And the I just feel like there's not a great response on the Anglo-Quebec side either, because it's not saying, okay, we have historically held a lot of privilege in this province, because Anglo-Quebecers have historically held a lot of privilege in Quebec. And now the tables are turning, and they're saying, oh, we're so oppressed, instead of saying, hey, let's look at the history here, let's see where this is coming from, let's see where us and our families and our ancestors are at fault as well. Um, And instead, I just feel like it just turns into a bunch of Anglo-Quebecers who have kind of lived with means and privilege for their whole lives going, well, I never got around to learning French and now I'm being oppressed. And it's sort of like, Mm -hmm. this is much more complicated and this affects people who are not you much more than it affects you. People struggle Um, to see any further than the tips of their nose, right? And their own realities. That's like when I have conversations with folks who are like, I can't believe that there's still racism, right? And you just kind of go like, really? I could have I could have told you you could have asked yeah. like I'm not going to talk about it every time I see you but yeah, yeah. this is a thing yeah. um, but there's also something about cultural poverty yeah. um, that is also very important in contexts like this because cultural poverty comes from a lack of value attributed to education a lack of value attributed to the arts, to creativity, to difference. Um, And that's, I find that also really challenging, right? Mm -hmm. When I was uh, doing my undergrad in theater, you study art in the early 20th century, and holy cannoli, there was a lot of interesting art happening. There was a lot of creativity, a lot of pushing the boundaries, a lot of uh, a lot of research being done about sexual identity, gender, things like that. And it's like uh, you reach a breaking point where it's too much to handle for the people in positions of high privilege. And then there's an immediate pendulum swing. And like, look, I'm not a political scientist and this is not what something I'm an expert on but it's still a trend that you can see well I mean even you were just talking about the work around sex and gender politics and one of the histories of World War II that we do not ever talk about which I think I've brought up here before that famous picture of Nazis burning books in the town square that is all of the research on trans people that had been done because Germany had been a hub for trans people they had been doing successful gender affirmation surgeries for for decades at that point there was it was really a central point for sexual and gender liberation and that didn't jibe with the fascist ideology and that had to go because binaries are really important in maintaining fascism which is something you should think about oh (laughs) preach teffer i just Uh we record this on fridays and on thursdays i have my awesome communications theory and history course which we spend quite a lot looking at gender and sex and we just had a really great conversation about Judith Butler and the uh, documentary Paris is Burning, which is a very interesting 
similarly problematic in that it was a privileged white woman making the documentary but like definitely an important piece of history especially if you're somebody who uses a lot of 2019 like slang and lingo go watch that and find out how much of it was appropriated from black drag culture in new york in the 80s because that was uh that was really good for me to see at least i think only i can say this around this table but i think that was a read (laughs) I'm honored. <laughs> yup. Um, anyway, so then when we come here, I'm just like, I'm ready to go. I've been talking about theory and Judith Butler and ideology and fascism and. Um, but I think it's also modernism. I think it's okay for us <laughs> yeah. to get angry when we Absolutely. talk about this. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that it's hard, right? Especially, especially as people who are part of oppressed minorities in one way or another around this table. Um, you know. We can't remain objective mm-hmm. in talking about how we talk about conflict, how we talk about war. We are part of, all three of us represent groups that are silenced, groups that aren't allowed to speak, groups that are cast aside. We are not part of the winners, quote unquote. So. It's it's important for us to get riled up when we talk about this because this is also not a to- it's not a light topic. This is serious. It's harsh. It's upsetting. It makes my stomach feel like I just like something unpleasant is about to happen. And and that's still important. We have to have these uncomfortable conversations. I mean, it's lovely to have these uncomfortable conversations when we're all pretty much on the same page. But it's even more important for us to have these conversations with people who don't see eye to eye with us. And then we're doing emotional labor and then we're doing a lot of education and then we get insulted. (laughs) Um, But nonetheless, it is important to have these conversations when we have the energy and when we have the strength Mm -hmm. um, and and the footing uh, to have them. And it's also important to have them in a safe space, I think, as well. Absolutely. I just like talking yeah. about this with y'all. <laughs> there you go. It's yeah. And I think I think you hit on such a good point about objectivity, which I want to go back to because I think like I think one of the things that like exists in this space but doesn't exist in a lot of spaces is kind of the awareness that objectivity is sort of a fake concept. Um like spirit fingers. Objectivity is like objectivity is just like the dominant perspective. Um, objectivity is basically like making people who see the oppression and things be quiet. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just, I think what you're saying is so important about like, yeah, when we have the opportunity to both be in spaces where we can be like, yeah, um, we need to look at the other perspectives, but also when we have people who are like, yes, there is an objective perspective on this to be like, well, actually though, is yeah. there. Yeah. Judith Butler is great for that. I, I, I texted you, didn't I? I texted this week and was like, I think you should read Judith Butler. Judith Butler is great. Judith Butler is dense. But Judith Butler's writing on sex and gender, I think, is really important because even the way that we talk about gender, even the way that like often a lot of queer people talk about gender, we say, well, gender is you know what you feel and how you express but sex is this rigid category and and sex judith butler's whole thing is that sex is as made up as gender is the male at female binary is as made up as gender is interesting fact this is so off topic of the books but we do that sometimes um 
intersex people are as common as redheads. So think about that the next time you're like, oh, well, intersex is this thing that very rarely happens. And then you have these main two categories. Uh, Like one in a hundred, I think. Yeah, uh, it's actually closer to 2% than 1%. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like 1.7%, I think. Um, that's not insignificant. And no, that is no. only the types of intersex that we know how to observe, because we used to think intersex people were only uh, um, like exterior physiological aspects, but actually you can be chromosomally intersex and present different ways. So like I said before, binaries are only important in enforcing power and to quote Foucault everything is a prison oh my is it Foucault got quoted Foucault I'm sorry I feel like we need to leave a slight space for like air horns here I love Foucault just you know little little lightening of the mood here but all right this is where the Yeah podcast goes when we get serious. <laughs> Usually we're like, fluff, Lin-Manuel Miranda, someone can get it. This and that. Today, Judith Butler, Foucault. I would watch Lin-Manuel Miranda play Foucault. I would watch Lin-Manuel Miranda clip his toenails. Let's just remember that. <laughs> so catty. Who in these uh, children's books about World War II can get it? <laughs> I'm making a very shocked face, <laughs> just so everyone knows. And as you can imagine, in what will be yet another bummer month theme-wise, not many people will be able to get it. Nope. King Christian's not bad. I looked him up. Mm. Uh, here's the thing. But, about, like, he's monarchy. No, mm. the, he's monarchy. And also... Um, I'm going to say this. You know when everyone um, asks those questions, like, if you could go back to any era, where would you go? My answer has always been nowhere. It's never been good for people like me. So I, I, all of this is hard. I think of King Christian. Sure, he might be cute, but would he have done anything to save my butt? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so these are contexts that are so charged and problematic and oi 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 yeah mm-hmm. it's yeah it's tough um yeah that's weird nobody mm-hmm. can get it no no Mm-mm. this is gonna be a month of no getting it mm-hmm. no no <sighs> So I have a family anecdote that I didn't get to tell because it didn't fit anywhere, but I want to tell it because it has to do with World War II. My great-grandfather um, was a uh, military refugee from Armenia during the Armenian Genocide. He lost a first family uh, that he never talked about. We don't know anything about them. He pretty much stopped speaking Armenian. He like really wanted to leave it behind him. Big, big generational trauma in my family. Um, so my grandfather was born in France uh, pretty much just in time for World War II and the Nazi occupation of France. And um, it never really entered my mind because my grandparents never talked about it, really. They left France in, I guess, the early 50s and went to America. And then my dad pretty much grew up back and forth between the Bronx and France. But my cousin recently, in the last five to ten years, 
uh, was going through my grandfather's stuff after he passed away and he found all a uh, medal of honor from the French resistance and a bunch of other things. And he it went to my mimi who is now also passed away, but she was alive at the time and said, mimi, what is all this stuff? <laughs> like, And she was just like, Oh, your grandfather, he was an idiot. He was trying to get himself killed. You know, my grandfather was a part of the French resistance in uh, Aix-en-Provence, um, you know, ripping up train tracks and, and going out at night and doing tomfoolery. And, uh, I do kind of wonder if some of that was coming from this history of having been oppressed and having been driven off of the homeland and, you know, having been victim of a genocide that inspired Hitler. Um, and I just thought that was really cool, but it was also fascinating to me because I'm so used to people talking so much about World War II and talking so much about their valorous deeds and you know how wartime is so great and in my family it was a secret it was kept absolutely secret because my grandmother was super unimpressed I guess and like thought it was idiotic for him to put himself on the line right Uh, my grandmother Italian came to France from Italy under Mussolini okay um but I wanted to tell that story you've got some badass blood running through your veins all Armenians do. We had to survive. <laughs> this is true. The, the the genocide was the culmination of like centuries and millennia of persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it sad to you. say, I get it. <laughs> no, no, man. <laughs> it's, it's really shitty to just turn around and be like, yeah, your people and my people. Yeah. No one likes them. <laughs> Well, no, your people are pretty cool. Also, they have great food. Such good food. Oh, God. Please, everyone. Um, uh, uh, Yes, this is a happy note. Please go out for Armenian brunch. I experienced this recently. Holy Where did you get it? At someone's house. Okay, yeah. See, that's how you do it. I got so confused at some point when I hit adulthood and realized when you go to somebody's house for dinner... Dinner does not start with a spread of dolmades and basterma and string cheese and olives and sometimes lachmajun in the little triangles and you dip them. Have lachmajun. Oh, my God. I am begging you, please do something nice for yourself if you are not a vegetarian because it's very meat-based. Get yourself some lachmajun. If you're in Montreal, ask me. I'll tell you where to get it. Just heat it up two minutes in the oven and eat it. Just do it for yourself. If you're vegetarian, I can I can point you to the vegetarian forms, but they're not as good. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into a silly impulse because this has been a very intense episode. Earlier, Teffer was impersonating chicken broth, and now I just really want to ask you to impersonate Lakshmi for us, just for a moment. I don't think I can be that sexy. <laughs> oh, so now we know who can get it in this episode. Ramdajun. My biggest fantasy is just to be covered in a blanket of lavender. That is a fantasy that I think is beautiful. I am borrowing it. It's realizable, you know? It wouldn't be that difficult to make that happen. (laughs) You need a really big oven. So, Patreon time, you you fold them up in a tea towel because that's how you keep them warm when you're doing a bunch. Oh, no, I thought it was like a really big one. It's just like individual small ones. Yeah, no, it can be like a quilt. It can be like a lavender quilt. So, dear Patreon supporters, please expect one day a little surprise photo of one of us, maybe <gasps> all of us, covered in lavender. It's going to be like a sexy holiday calendar. 
Uh, I knew we wouldn't be able to stay super intense and serious for the whole podcast. And it makes me happy. I think that's a great Patreon idea. All right. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email or some lachmajun at the yeah podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Yeah Podcast. And individually, I'm at Caddy Double underscore D. I'm at The Balesosaurus. And I'm at Tepper Bear. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus con- bonus con- including early access to bonus content. <laughs> Tom, I don't want you to edit this at all. Please leave <laughs> guest appearances and more. I don't know why I'm losing it at this point, but we're just gonna roll with it. Head to Patreon.com/slash/YeahPodcast. <laughs> I just would like it to be known that everybody else is also cracking up. I'm just the only one who has to talk yeah. while cracking up. It's true. It's Shout true. out to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Suchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Deaver. And Matt Dever. Sorry, Matt. Um, I actually want to just put in a little bracket and say... Uh, Patreon is pretty healthy right now, and it's really nice. We're we're covering our costs. We are paying our editor a little bit. Um, it would be great to be able to pay him a little bit more, but but we're in a good place. Uh, this is like a good number of patrons for first year and a half, and thank you all so much. You're all so like active and warm, and you message us, and it's really nice. And we love it. Mm-hmm. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Tea Public. Tom told me I was sterile when I do cold reads. <laughs> there so you I'm go, working Tom. on it. She's not sterile anymore. <laughs> wow. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend. Maybe share this with yeah i feel like that would be a nice one i might share it with my teacher special thanks to great bear for letting us use their song jenny's groove as our theme music you can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com uh andrew van Orstren of great bear just put out a music video for his song boy with gray eyes and you should look it this episode this episode (laughs) was produced by me, Tefra Jemian, and edited by Tom Zalatni. Possibly by me, Tefra Jemian. We're working that out. I might start editing these as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the other good shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Bye. 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 Cool. Thanks, guys. So, did you just say good? If you're someone who interacts with kids, you're probably familiar with moments of being asked questions you're just not equipped to answer. Whether it's the old favorite, where do babies come from, or the nuances of discrimination, Rad Child Podcast has your back. Each episode, your host, Seth Day, leads a discussion about topics like race, disability, loss, gender, sexuality, and so much more. Our goal is to give grown-ups the tools to talk to kids about almost anything. So come give a listen. Rad Child Podcast. Helping to raise a generation of open, compassionate, rad kids. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else. Hey, I'm Aaron Lakoff, host of Changing on the Fly, a brand new podcast on the Outfit Network. 
Changing on the Fly is a podcast that dives deep into the intersections between hockey and social justice. We take on issues of sexism, racism, and homophobia on the ice. You'll hear from athletes, activists, fans, scholars, and even musicians who love hockey but want to keep the jerks out of the game. Think Colin Kaepernick or Serena Williams, but with skates and less teeth. It's your perfect antidote to Don Cherry and Coach's Corner. Hey, Don, what do you think of changing on the fly? Not the left-wing pinkle media, bleeding hearts, guys. What are you, nuts? Anyways, you can find Changing on the Fly wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com. Yeah, the best thing you can, hey.